The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Well, welcome everyone. Um, probably know tonight is the week eight, the last week for our Buddhist studies class on anatta, the Buddha's teachings on not-self. And uh, maybe we'll just do a brief check-in about the meditation because it really goes to the heart of what we've been learning these last weeks. It would be so easy and tragic, right, to have studied what we've studied only to be left with another self-project. Which you know is which like I'm going to realize not self, or I'm going to once and for all put down, get rid of these self-centered activities, and it's very common. I mean, it's maybe unavoidable that that would I mean that would be our perspective because the habit is systemic where whatever doesn't matter what the instructions or even how clear the instructions, how nuanced they are, the systemic habit is to frame things as a self-problem. Everything is a self-problem. So when we're meditating, that's one of the reasons there's so much emphasis on tranquility because selfing is always stressful. Framing things from a point of view of I, me, or mine always has the flavor of stress or dukkha. So if we cultivate the calm of present moment awareness, the continuity of present moment awareness, that non-judging awareness, right? then we'll notice selfing. We'll see it. And because there's this baseline, you know, to, the, to whatever degree, we have some momentum with samadhi, there's a baseline of stability and calm, then that particular habit energy of the mind to worry about something that happened earlier, to imagine something that might happen tomorrow and we're excited about or we're nervous about, or, you know, there's any number of patterns that are going to show up in a half an hour set, right? And now they're showing up against the background of calm. So it's relatively easy then for the mind to take the role of being the one who's interested in that little display of selfing, that little activity of worrying or planning or hoping or you know, even being the meditator, being the practitioner who wants to be calm or thinks I need to or I'm finally getting it. So there's any number of ways for self-centered activity to blossom there. And then the idea isn't to, okay, I, I saw my enemy, I see the enemy, let me get to work. But it's more wanting to be curious and see that selfing isn't the problem. Misunderstanding selfing is the problem. So these ordinary self-centered, what we would call ordinary thinking, self-centered thinking, 
worrying, planning, hoping, comparing, internal gossiping about people, complaining, lying, right? <coughs> the problem is the mind or wisdom misunderstanding what that is. And the resolution of that problem is to see that that self-centered activity is empty of self. It's just what it is being known. It doesn't refer back. So that's the resolution is a shift in understanding. It's not a clever psychological move where we learn how to, like, because we do that sometimes, like in, in the stabilizing of present moment awareness as a, you know, just to say it in th this kind of language, as an ego, I might get in there and say, oh no, I'm worrying, I'm going to do this Dharma move to push the worry out of the mind and I'll bring loving kindness into the mind or I'll bring my meditation object in like that image the Buddha used as using a peg, a wooden peg to pound out the old rotten peg. Right? So I'm going to bring my attention to the breath and by with real integrity bringing my attention to the breath I'm making myself not pay attention to this thought about worrying what's going to happen tomorrow or whatever. So there is a lot of this warring, <laughs> you know, skillfully, sometimes with a subtle nuance, and sometimes like we're just getting in and we're wrestling with the mental tendencies so, that, so as not to be swept away by unhelpful tendencies, right? So we sort of meet the mind where it's at, and if it's a real beast, then we have to sometimes get in there. No, I'm not going to think about this. And sometimes the mind is less beastly and it can just be gently encouraged to be present, to stabilize awareness. But then once we get somewhat settled, then we don't want to keep practicing from the self-centered point of view. I'm somebody with a conditioned mind that's all over the place and I want to be settled. That's how we usually start a sit. And even the first 10, 20 lifetimes of our practice... <laughs> Right? Where we, you know, it feels like a self centered project a lot of the time. I have this mind, it's like this today. What can I do to tame it? What can I do to help it settle down? What can I possibly do to have that inner good feeling I sometimes get in a set? Because that's what I want. Right? So it's very self centered. And then it's only when there's some degree of stability, calm, that the anatta, because it's such a subtle thing, the peace, right, the mind, the one who knows, awareness, sensing everything as a movement of nature. And so with that, see, with tranquility has some wisdom to it. Because tranquility is that, that easeful sense like stuff's just happening on its own, pretty content. I'm not being pushed around by somebody's likes and dislikes. right? That's, that's the ego, that's the self-centeredness, being pushed around by my likes and dislikes. But when I'm feeling good, a lot of that egoic activity of being chased by my, or pushed around by likes and dislikes, it kind of recedes because I'm feeling good. I'm feeling tranquil and calm. So then still 
self-centered activity will burst into the scene because of it's got momentum. It ha- you know, and there will be triggers. You'll hear somebody rustling, or a memory will come up, and it, and then in a moment there will be a little self-centered drama. But against the background of calm, there's the possibility that wisdom recognizes that it's just something being felt, being known, something that has taken birth, and then it will cease. It will only cease if the mind lets it be what it is. If the mind misinterprets it as me or mine, that thought, that worry, that hope, then that misinterpretation fuels, right? It becomes a feedback loop. It's still coming and going, but it's replicating itself. So as it's ceasing, it's re-emerging because the mind or, yeah, the mind, the way the mind is relating or attending to it is from this frame of self, conceit, I, me, or mine. So, With that in mind, it might be nice for a few people just to share, like in the meditation tonight and then previously at home, you know, just that observing of selfing, observing the ordinary dramas that come and go in our mind, right? And just uh, any thoughts you have, and you can do this, this is the sort of setup for the small group discussions too, but just noticing conceit, any sense of me as better than, worse than, same as, any conception of self, but seeing it as a present moment phenomena, and when seen from that not-self point of view, then the selfing activity is understood as just nature, empty of self, not a problem, right? Because it's when the self thinks that selfing is a problem, you see the entanglement. Oh, I have to make this mind different. And you see how this, even in this very subtle way of working with our own mind, it's teaching us how to work with the complexity and messiness of the whole world, of our relationships, right? Right? So is the way that we deal with the like the heaviness in my heart, I've got to fix the world? Or do I have to transform how I relate, how I understand my relationships and what's happening in the world? And the image in the tradition, some of you have heard, is just like if we're constantly getting... Um, poked by the sharp things we're stepping on, we might have the brilliant idea, I'm going to cover the entire earth in shag carpet. (laughs) Then I'll no longer step on sharp objects. Or we can build a pair of shoes. And this is the, you know, the pointing to wisdom. Like instead of me constantly thinking, if only I can manage the world, organize the world so it doesn't bother me, then I'll be happy. And we go to work. Like getting our house together, getting our partner together, getting rid of our partner, finding a different partner, <laughs> making our kids the way we think they should be, making the world the way we think it should be, pretending the world is the way we want it to be, 
not looking over there, not looking over there, because we don't want to be disturbed, hiding in our little communities, so that we can pretend that it is the way that I want it to be. That's endlessly stressful. Or we can learn to open and embrace the messiness and the imperfection and the suffering in and around us and see it and feel it for what it is, like outright exposure. Because outright exposure to life, engagement, exposure to life, you see, that's not a problem unless there's a somebody who wants permanent safety. But for nature, nature's not afraid of viruses. I mean, it's really, it will be really interesting in these months ahead, um, assuming that you know, uh, the virus spreads, to kind of take care of business not to be averse to doing what's good to do, like training ourselves not to touch your face and waving instead of shaking hands and giving people hugs and, you know, thinking about surfaces and who has touched that surface in the last week. <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't touch that surface or maybe there's a particular way I should make contact with that surface. Without being con- the heart unnecessarily being confused with the stories that the mind can tell. Because the mind is a, you know, part of the mind is a storytelling mind. It's just going to keep telling stories. And uh, like one of the, there I go. (laughs) One of the stories the mind tells, I'm not sure that's the right thing to do, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is where practice comes in, where you can have an itch and you have the option of just feeling the itch without actually having to scratch the itch. This is what something we learn in the first ten lifetimes of our practice. How to feel an itch without actually having to touch it. Anyway, I, let's just take a couple comments and then I'll have a few more things to say before we s- split into small groups. So just comments about the sit tonight or earlier, seeing selfing. And it could be just even in the middle of the day. Uh, not in a formal set, where you saw selfing as just a present moment phenomena, something being known. And then what did the mind realize when you saw that mental activity in that way? Any thoughts about that that come to mind? Yeah, Judy, you want to start us off? We'll just maybe do two people all the way in the back there. Well, I I kind of have a question. I kind of have a question because I noticed this. Um, I, w- I was with a group of people this weekend and um, I was just noticing this come up a lot, especially because we're studying this. Just noticing various times when I, I would see the ego arising and, um, you know, in the way of judgment better than, or if I was feeling a little insecure. The ego was screaming, you know, oh, I'm not good enough, or, you know, just feeling a little fear and all that kind of thing. And in the past, um, you or others have talked about um, when that 
that the simple act of noticing and awareness of that, like that just helps somehow, <laughs> I don't quite understand, but, but over time things will dissipate just because of awareness. Um, so I guess I was wondering as this was happening and I was noticing it, is that, is that true for, you know, what I'm describing as what was happening to me this weekend? Yeah, and we can confirm that. I mean, it, the, actually, we should be asking you that question. Was it true that when you looked at it, even if the looking might have been a little contaminated with self, like this is unpleasant, so partly I'm looking at this as a natural arising, and partly I'm looking at it as something that's painful, the selfing, and I want it to go away. But to whatever degree the mind was looking at it with more of a uh, wholesome curiosity, not an agenda, then the question to you would be, did the tension of that selfing dissipate when the mind saw it as a natural phenomena, something that comes and goes and is not self? Well, I think what I was aware of <laughs> was just I was aware of the of the tension, you know, and um, and a little bit of fear. Like, is being aware of this good enough? So the self is like still on a project here to get rid of it, right, you know. Right. And anyway, I, I don't I don't know that I've yeah. so <laughs> gone the next of, step, but <laughs> yeah, a lot of the nimbleness is for wisdom to quickly take another step back and recognize the doubt. Mm-hmm. which would yes. be the next arising, the next selfing. Oh, this is, what n- this is now what the mind is taking the self to be, the one who's in doubt about whether I know what I'm doing or th- whether this is going to help, you know, whatever yeah. the doubt might yeah. be. Yeah. So that's the thing. It's, and that's why that question, I recommend that you memorize that question. What is the uh, mind, what is the mind taking the self to be now? What's the mind taking the self to be right now? And you can, like, this would be a good moment. What is right now the mind taking the self to be? And you might catch a whiff of, oh, I'm the person who's trying to understand this. Or I'm the person who thinks I'm never going to get this. Or I'm the person, you know, the self is the one that thinks this is just a bunch of hogwash. Or whatever. But je- that's just the next arising that is arising out of that very pervasive framing where the meaning-making mind, it's you know a subtle part of thinking, is always constructing meaning from a particular point of view. But we correct that by cultivating mindful awareness. See, what really um, brings wisdom into mindful awareness is when there's enough continuity... <clears throat> this is why there's such a big emphasis in concentration, which isn't a great translation of the word samadhi in Buddhism. Because <clears throat> uh, mindfulness is going to be infused with our basic habits of conceit and self-centeredness. Right? It's a good idea. I want to get good at it. But when, when there's enough continuity there's a good feeling. It's just like, 
it just naturally goes with the continuity of present moment awareness, the body, heart, and mind feels good. Because the mind, to be continuously aware of the present moment, the mind has to abandon so much neurotic activity that causes its ordinary tension. So when we do have enough continuity of present moment awareness, when we're actually being what we mean mindful, then it feels good. And then that inner good feeling diffuses a lot of egoic activity because most egoic activity is about feeling good. So when I'm feeling good, what's the point of egoic activity? So a lot of it falls to the side when we feel some basic inner happiness, inner ease, inner calm and joy. Then now that hungry part of the, mi- the mind's conditioning, the greed, anger, delusion part, is relatively quiet. So then there's some basic wisdom like, oh, this is the mind without a lot of hunger without a lot of craving. Mm-hmm. This is the mind without a lot of craving going on. Without a l- and so then that the reason I say there's some wisdom there is because all of a sudden that mind can start to recognize craving, doing with an agenda as something being known. Because it has that contrast of feeling relatively chilled out, relatively at ease. So when the mind the egoic mind, the greedy, angry mind or whatever springs into action and we're chewing on some memory or fantasizing about something that we're really excited about, it just stands out in contrast to the heart that's at ease with non-craving. Then when craving arises, it's easier to see it take birth in the mind as a phenomena being known and see it cease when when the mind doesn't take the bait. Take it as I, me, or mine. Oh, no, that's just a thought. That's just a little drama being known. Oh, yeah. So the the key is that um, often we'll start to see these patterns, but we're still in that controlling mode because we're not feeling good. Mm-hmm. And so when we're not feeling good, the question is how to find some ease. You know, we have the different reflections that bring loving kindness in. We have, I mean, this is why it's really worth developing that particular muscle of connecting and sustaining. Because when I can sustain present moment awareness with some neutral meditation object, I can't be neurotic. I'm too busy (laughs) connecting and sustaining awareness with the breath or with the sensations of the body sitting or the experience of hearing. But it's really hard to generate the intention to do something like that because the ego doesn't understand what the purpose is. And, it, and if the ego is kind of going, or the self-centered tendency, why are you trying to squeeze me out of the scene? <laughs> you know, you're trying to do something, and when you're doing that, the overlord can't be here. Right? See, and that's the, that's the whole point mm-hmm. of developing that continuity of present moment awareness is it really cleans the mind out because the mind is full of connecting to an object. And sometimes we use different objects, not 
the same object over and over again, right? What we call open attention practice. And sometimes we're working with just a particular meditation object, like bringing the attention to the rising and falling of the abdomen or touching as the air goes in and out or some aspect of present moment experience. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Judy. Any other experience from sitting that makes sense to bring up? Yeah, Rafi. And then I'll say a few more words to set up the small group discussions. Yeah. Uh, I have a, a mundane, I think, uh, a uh? mundane, ordinary uh, example, I think, of what you're talking about. Um, uh, I swim. I like swimming. And um, I find out that swimming and meditation is, is a good mix because you are focused on your breath, you know, mm-hmm. constantly. But um, just this last week, uh, I was swimming, all so nice, and then suddenly this uh, other person came to the next lane, and she was much faster and better than me. <laughs> and so, I, 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 yes, I catch myself thinking, wow, I'm, I suck at this, I'm not good, she's faster, she's better. And then your words came to me, it's all nature, it's all causes and conditions, and I was like, <laughs> they had nothing to do with me, if this person wouldn't have gotten to the here, I, you know, I would not be thinking or having that thought. It's all, it's, it's nothing, nothing yeah. to do with me. I was selfing and comparing. And so, I, I, you know, the question you asked her before, for me was I, God, the, the moment I realized that I didn't need to compare and nothing to do with me, it was all causes and conditions, the whole stress yeah. disappeared. Yeah. Ne- nevertheless, if I see another person in the other line shorter than me, you know, uh, slow, slower than me, then I feel like, hey. And then I catch myself again thinking, here goes the ego now, thinking I'm so <laughs> fast and so good. But I've been swimming for years, and now that I come to realize all these things going on in the swimming pool in my mind. <laughs> yeah, everywhere, yeah. everywhere, right? In traffic at the grocery store, conceit is endemic in the mind. And I don't think it's going to go away. It's the misunderstanding. And that's what got corrected in that moment. right? It's totally because of the way our minds is condi- are conditioned. When somebody comes close to us, you know, we're going to have opinions, whether it's swimming in the pool or anywhere else. The mind is going to have opinions and sometimes the, uh, the mind will feel threatened and sometimes the mind will be attracted and sometimes the mind is going to feel better than and sometimes worse than and sometimes the same. And the deal will be, as you described, Rafi, to understand that that judgment is just what it is. And you see how this is different than trying to become perfect, the person who doesn't have judgments or who doesn't have conceits, as opposed to this aspiration to be wise. The person who understands that conceit or judgments or any kind of expectation agenda, it's just that it's empty of self. It's something that arose in the mind because of causes and conditions, as Rafi said, and will cease like it happened. It just the, the issue ceased because the mind didn't misunderstand it. It knew what that whole little bubble that arose in your mind was, that drama. It was empty of self. It was causes and conditions. 
not me, not mine, right? not I. It was just that natural phenomenon. And it's such a relief. This is what really brings in the sense of freedom. It's such a relief not to have to be perfect. The practice is realizing the way that it is and the way that it has been and the way that it always will be. So we don't have to become special or different to be free. We just need to understand what this is right now, what it's always been. The drama of my life, what has it been? Like all those stupid things I've done, those embarrassing things that I would never want to tell you. Right? It's like all of that is empty of self. And all the good stuff we've done, the stuff we're proud of, the stuff I'd like you to know about me, you know? Empty of self. And that's and it's just so liberating to not have to uh, be tied to that part of the mind, that sort of ordinary, unavoidable part of the mind. You know, it's just part of that animal conditioning of hierarchy, like am I here or here, equal, better, worse. That part is going to happen. And in a way, you know, it's a little idealistic as primate, primates to somehow think that we're going to create a culture or society that doesn't have hierarchy of some kind. You know, I'm not saying it can't get better or less toxic. I think it can. But it's always going to have these sort of constructs, but we don't have to be confused by them. And so if we run into somebody who's got really difficult conditions, or if we run into one of the beautiful people who happen to be really wise and kind and physically beautiful and every good thing has happened to them. But we're not confused by whatever kind of response we feel or sense in our heart. Oh, jealousy. How interesting. You know, pity. Oh, look at that. It's just pity being known. So in the small groups, I don't know how many of you had a chance to take a look at Christina Feldman's article, I thought it was sort of nice, The Long Journey to a Bow. And I think that's such a useful image um, because, you know, it's it's not so much in our culture, especially these full bows. There's a uh, Westerner, I don't know if anybody knows about Reverend Hung Shur. He uh, is just an American guy, but living in the Bay Area, I think, um, but he ran into a Chinese um, Mahayana Buddhist teacher back uh, a while back and uh, found his way into Buddhist practice and ordained. So he's a, a bhikkhu, a Buddhist monk in the Mahayana tradition. And uh, for six years, he took on the training of not speaking. And for the first two and a half years of that, he walked from their center in L.A. to their, they have a monastery called the City of 10,000 Buddhas. It's actually the group that donated the land for Abayagiri, which is in our tradition. Both are uh, a little bit outside of Ukiah in uh, Northern California. So I don't know how many hundreds of miles that is because Ukiah, Ukiah is 
it's like two, three hours north of San Francisco. So from L.A. to two or three hours north of San Francisco. Every three steps, full bow. That's why it took two and a half years. And uh, so like, now, that would bring up, like, can imagine how embarrassing that is, you know, as people drive by and harass you or wondering you're in your robes and you know shaved heads and doing this weird thing you know just that I mean you can imagine how many moments of feeling so superior like you idiots you don't realize what I'm doing you know and how many times doubt would have risen like what am I doing this is so weird <laughs> you know or and so one of the things I thought might be useful in the small groups is to Think about places in your life where there has been a very clear, strong sense of conceit, being better than, being the same as, or being worse than, less than. And the important thing is like a real certainty. Yeah, we're the same. We're the same. And the mind is sort of projecting that identity. No, 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 we're the same. We're all the same here. Or no, 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 (laughs) I'm better than you. Look it. I'm sitting higher or something. You know, whatever it is. I've got a, my Boy Scout badge on or something that makes us different. You know, I'm a teacher, you're a student. Or, you know, I'm the parent here, you're my kid. And just like seeing that construct of being better than as just that, a construct that the mind has constructed and is clinging to with identi- identification. And the same thing with places in your life worse than. And you might find that even you may not have that much space of wisdom in the places you're going to bring up during your three-minute sharing, but just talking about that place where you feel less than or you feel more than, I mean, that's sort of a risky thing to do. Hopefully there's enough safety in the small groups to just own that there are places in my life where I feel better than. And there are places in my life where I feel less than. And there are these places in my life where I'm deludedly identified with being the same as. And then you might just save a little time, a few seconds at the end, take one of those places that feels especially poignant and just imagine the mind not clinging to that identity of being the same as or better than or worse than. It just, oh yeah, Always when I'm with my parent, my mom, let's say, I feel less than, you know. And just to, like, what would it be like that for that pattern to be there, but the mind not to be confused by that pattern of being less than or better than or whatever. Does that give everyone enough to go on for the small groups? So we have plenty of time tonight. You, uh, so at least three minutes per person and uh, then... This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.